All right, church. Uh, just one brief programming note. Rox and I will be away on a little romantic getaway this week. Uh, so, and we will not have cell reception. So if you text me or call me and I do not answer, it is not because I'm ignoring you. It's because I literally don't know that, uh, that you called. So thanks to my parents who are here in town to, who will be watching the kids this week. I think this is the first time we'll have gotten away in about three years, maybe. So uh, yeah, we are, we are ready for a, a time away. And uh, the snow came just in time. We're going to be at the beach. And uh, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be nicer than here. So uh, we, we can't wait. Have fun with your regular weeks this week. All right, church, uh, we are going to be back in Matthew. If you will stand with me, if you're able, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, in your mercy, help us to hear from your word this morning. May we have a tender heart and open ears. I pray this all in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen. All right, church. You know I am a rabid Indiana Hoosier basketball fan, and uh, basketball season has started, and so that means you will be hearing some basketball illustrations over the next few months. But uh, my precious team, IU, plays Harvard this afternoon. Harvard is a good three-point shooting team, and uh, my team... The Indian Hoosiers are sadly a terrible three-point defensive team. They are one of the worst in the country. And uh, I'm sure that Harvard knows this. Why? Because there's a thing called the scouting report. All teams do this. In all sports, you watch the team that you are about to play, and you put together a scouting report. You say, this is where they're strong, this is where they're weak, this is how we think we should uh, be able to kind of combat their strengths and take advantage of their weaknesses. The scouting report is important. It's an important part of your preparation. Well, what we are seeing in Matthew chapter 10 is kind of like a scouting report for what to expect when the disciples of Jesus, when his followers go out into the world and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is giving us a scouting report saying this is what you can expect. 
we've been in this Behold Your King series, and in the first uh, two chapters, in chapters 8 and 9, we were kind of looking at Jesus, and now we're kind of shifting gears into beholding and telling others to behold, here is our King, here is the message of the kingdom. And I want us to remember, as we are looking at chapter 10, talking about proclaiming this message and thinking about the scouting report, we cannot lose sight of what we looked at last week. Because last week was key for understanding all of chapter 10. And we saw that Jesus sends out people to proclaim his message out of a deep compassion that he has for lost people. It's not a begrudging compassion, but it's a deep felt emotion of love that he has for people who don't know him. That is our king. And so everything that we're talking about today isn't just a, hey, go and do this, and this is what you should expect, but it's something that comes out of the heart of Jesus. I don't want us to lose sight of that. By the end of today, we're, just be, we're going to be seeing a really simple thing. Jesus opens up this part of Matthew with a really simple expectation. And specifically, we're going to see there's an expectation that we proclaim, but we also need to be relying on those that we proclaim too, and we should expect two particular responses. So we're going to see proclaim, rely, and expect. You even see that at the bottom of your worship order, but that's where we're going. Now, chapter 10 is something we call the second discourse in the book of Matthew. There's five discourses or speeches that, Matthew, or that Jesus gives in Matthew, and Matthew structures his entire book really around these five discourses. We saw kind of the ethics of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're talking about the proclamation of the kingdom. Again, what to expect as we proclaim this kingdom to the watching world. And this discourse really is for us. Yes, it was originally given to the disciples, but Matthew includes it in here for us so that we would know what to expect when we go out. All right, with that, let's dive in. Let's talk about what's going on in these verses. Starting again in verse 5, these 12, again, these were the disciples, he, Jesus sent them out instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus is giving the disciples a who. This is who they are to go to. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. We talked all about sheep and all that that entails last week. But specifically here, we're seeing Jesus is sending them to ethnic Jews. Ethnic Jews. Now you may be reading this and think, okay, this is a little odd. We've seen that Matthew has had an emphasis on the nations coming to know Jesus. We saw that way back in the beginning of Matthew last year at about this time when we talked about the wise men from the east coming and worshiping Jesus. They're the first ones to recognize who Jesus is. This is going to be a theme that goes throughout the rest of Matthew as well, that Jesus is calling the nations to himself. At the very end of the book, we get the Great Commission where Jesus says to his disciples, go into all nations making disciples. Jesus himself has a Gentile ministry in a few chapters that we're going to see. So why does Jesus say to the disciples here, basically, I want you to go to ethnic Jews right now? Why? This seems odd. It doesn't seem to match up with what we see in the rest of the book. In the book of Matthew, Matthew is very clear that membership in the household of God is not based on ethnic identity, but in what your response to Jesus is. Well, a few reasons. One, there's just a reality of a geographical, uh, a geographical reality that's happening. 
Galilee, where Jesus is doing his ministry, was kind of surrounded by a lot of Gentile areas, uh, and then also to the south was Samaria. So Jesus is basically saying, hey, I want you to stay right here. Like, don't take the road to the Gentile regions. That's the literal language that's there in the Greek, is don't take the road to the Gentiles. He's like, I want you to stay here locally. So the the two big reasons, though, that's kind of a geographical kind of aside, but there's two real big reasons. One is that Jesus' ministry needed to start with the people of Israel. That's very clear, that the Messiah was going to come to Israel. And yes, all of the nations needed to respond to this Messiah, but Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is Israel's king. But then secondly, Matthew is actually emphasizing the point that it's your response to Jesus that matters. We're going to see that in this very passage. Down in verse 15, we're going to see that Jesus offers a stern rebuke to those who don't respond. And he's saying, even though these people are a part of ethnic Israel, they are ethnic Jews, if they don't respond to me, they are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. So Matthew is kind of driving home his theme that has been in this book and will continue to be in the book, that the response to Jesus is what matters. So that's why we find this initial command right here at the start of basically don't go to the Gentiles, but yes, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So let's keep going. We'll start with our our first main point today. Jesus' people have a ministry of proclamation. Jesus' people have a ministry of proclamation. This is what we do. This is what we do. There's a ministry of proclamation. This is exactly what Jesus was doing. In verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 35, we saw that Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is passing the baton of ministry to his disciples. And we talked about this last week as well, this idea that Jesus entrusts his ministry to fallen creatures such as you and me. And this is something that all of us have been given, and we'll see that in Matthew as it continues. And this is because, again, of Jesus' compassion. There's a ministry of proclamation. So let's see this in our text, verses 7 and 8. And proclaim as you go. It's right there in the command. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So we start with this command to proclaim. That implies that there is a message. Proclaiming involves opening your mouth. Proclamation means to announce or tell. The Christian doesn't just live a life that shows people what Jesus is like, but the Christian opens his or her mouth and shows, or and speaks, and says that the kingdom is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, we looked at this idea, the good news of the kingdom. We talked about what that meant. The restorative rule and reign of God is here. And that's what they are to go and proclaim. And there needs to be a response to this rule and reign of God arriving in the world. Elsewhere in Matthew, in chapter 3, John the Baptist talked about this, and then Jesus himself talked about it in chapter 4, verse 23, and when they talked about it, it was coupled with the word repent. Repent, basically stop living in your own lane, 
kind of advancing your own kingdom, but instead submit over here, go this way, towards the rule and reign of God. That is the command that comes with this proclamation. It's to turn to this kingdom of God that is here, the rule and reign of God. We need to respond. So this is a message that we give that demands a response. No response is a response. It's a response of no. Now, here in these verses, in starting in verse 8, we also get these commands to do these miracles of healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, cast out demons. Do those sound familiar? They're the exact same miracles that we just saw Jesus do in chapter 8 and 9. No coincidence that we find them here. Here's something curious about these miracles. They're almost kind of mentioned in passing. Jesus bestows this great authority on the disciples, gives them the ability to raise the dead, and there's no mention of it in the rest of chapter 10. You're like, that seems kind of odd. Why? Why do we get this? Why are they kind of mentioned in passing? Well, ultimately, these miracles, not only do they give credence to their message, but ultimately they are pointing to the message itself. The miracles aren't just, oh, yay, isn't that great? But they are examples of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. If the kingdom of God is all about God's restorative rule and reign, doesn't it make sense that the physical things would be changing as well? And so these miracles go with the message of proclamation. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here. Therefore, you should also be going and doing these miracles as well. But the the ultimate thing isn't about the miracles. The miracles point to the message. They're ultimately pointing to someday when Christ ultimately returns, there won't be any more sickness or dying or leprosy or anything that is what ought not to be. It will all be restored when the kingdom comes in full. And Jesus' disciples get to do this. They are just like Jesus. They are bringing this good news. Now, church, we have a temptation when we look at this passage and seeing Jesus send the disciples out. We forget that this is good news and then we're also shy or scared to proclaim. It's easy to proclaim good news. Church, if my basketball team does well, you're going to hear about it. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm apologize up front. But if we do well this year, which we probably won't, you're going to hear about it. Why? Because it's good news. I love it. You eagerly share the things that you see as good news. So do we see the gospel as good news? It means good news. Do we see the idea of God's rule and reign really as good news? There's a famous atheist, uh, he's a magician uh, named Penn Gillette. You may have heard of him before, uh, of Penn and Teller fame. And uh, he's, he one time was sharing a story of uh, how a gentleman came and gave him a Gideon Bible after one of his shows. And Penn Gillette, who is a militant atheist, by the way, militant atheist, he is a, a, an evangelistic atheist, you uh, should say. He was thankful for it. And he said this, If you believe there is a heaven and hell, and you think it's not worth telling someone about it, how much do you have to hate him to not proselytize? That means share the good news. How much do you have to hate him to not 
proselytize. If we have good news, shouldn't we share it? This is coming from an evangelistic atheist. And he's saying he has no respect for Christians who do not share their faith. We are hesitant to share the good news. I think because we often don't see it as good news and we don't see that the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. And so we sit on our hands and we keep our mouths closed and we don't share this good news. Now, I don't share this to say poo-poo on us and shame on you, church, but to just acknowledge reality that this is a temptation. It's a temptation for me, and I was a professional missionary for 15 years, and I still find it difficult to open my mouth and speak. It's a lot easier up here when I have a microphone and people listening to me, but when you encounter people in life and there's relationship at risk, it can be scary. But we need to open our mouths if we are to proclaim. It is a message that needs to be said. Last week I talked about having five people, kind of a top five list that you would pray for. And this week I encourage you to think through who is one person on your top five list that you could proclaim the gospel to. And really it's easy as just start by asking questions. You know, hey, what do you think about spiritual things or how were you raised? And then after they share, you know, feel free to ask a bunch of follow-up questions and then ask if you can share good news that has changed your life. Share it. Well, Lord willing, they'll say yes. And almost always people will say yes to that, especially if you have given the time and attention to ask them what they think. Let them, or, and then ask if you can share. Share. And then ask them, what do you think about that? And then from there, just see where the conversation goes. But ultimately, see try to get to a place where they will need to respond to what you said. And again, I've said this before. It needs to be four easy points. A message about God. He's the ruler. He's the reign. He reigns. He's a creator. He deserves our allegiance. Message about God. Message about sin. We've rebelled. It It deserves death. Message about Jesus. Jesus died for us on the cross. And then lastly, they need to respond. Will they believe? Those four simple things. Take time, kind of write out one or two sentences for God, sin, Christ, response. Like, what would you say? Just work through that on a piece of paper. And then once you do that, you're good to go. Start talking with somebody. Proclamation is not just for the experts. It's for anybody who can communicate. Anybody who can communicate. All right, we've been on this for a while. Jesus' people have a ministry of proclamation. So, we have this ministry of proclamation. How do we operate as we proclaim? What does Jesus say, or how does he say it ought to be done? How do they live? Second idea today. As Jesus' people proclaim, they must rely on provision from their hearers. As Jesus' people proclaim, they must rely on provisions from their hearers. Now, you may look at this and be like, Pastor Mark, I don't know how relevant this is to me. This seems relevant to you, the guy that the church is paying. How is this relevant to the rest of us? Well, I'll get there, but let's get back into the text. So we start up, pick it up in verse uh, 8b. And and by the way, your verse numbers don't always land where they ought. This is an example where the real thought was verse 7 and then the first half of 8, and then Jesus kind of starts a new thought halfway through 8, starting with this sentence. You received without paying, give without pay. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. The command there, there's one command, well, one main command, give the message without pay. Give 
the message without pay. Now, this is really in contrast to a cultural reality of their day. You had traveling, itinerant philosophers, and they lived in a hospitality culture. So if you showed up in a town, people would give you room and board. All right, You didn't have to go to the Holiday Inn Express and be eaten at Culver's while you were visiting somewhere. You were in someone's home. That was a mark of a, of a good and righteous area that they would house you and feed you. But these itinerant people would also charge a fee. They'd say, hey, I'll teach you, but you need to pay for what I have to offer you. And Jesus is pushing against that and saying, no, just rely on people's hospitality. You don't need to get rich off of where I'm sending you and what I'm sending you to do. Just go and proclaim the message, trusting that I will provide through others. And why don't we charge? Well, the message of the kingdom is something we receive for free. One of the marks of the messianic age, of the Messiah, the King of Israel coming, is found in Isaiah 55. It's one of the passages that talks about this glorious future. And at the very beginning of Isaiah 55, it says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the messianic age is something that will come and invite you to receive its blessings for free. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? We don't deserve life. We have nothing to offer God. And yet in His love, He sends Christ to die for us. And there's nothing that we can do in order to earn His love, in order to make ourselves worthy of Christ's sacrifice. But we just receive. We come and we eat for free because that is the God that we have. And so Jesus is saying, look, you receive the kingdom, this message of the kingdom, this good news, just out of my grace and mercy. So you just need to give it away as well. So how are they ultimately going to be supplied? Are they going to be begging? No. They're just relying on hospitality. And Jesus tells them, you don't need to bring a bunch of extra provisions when he says, you know, don't acquire silver or gold or copper, he's saying basically, hey, don't go grab a bunch of money and, and bring it with you. You're not going to need it. You're not going to need all this extra stuff as things wear out on your journey, which this wasn't really a long journey, so it's not probably going to wear out anyways. But you're basically going to have everything that you need. You don't need more. Rely on what comes your way. And what's the reasoning for all this? What's the cause of it? What's the root, the ground, we should say? For the laborer deserves his food. It's a right and good thing for those proclaiming the gospel to earn their living from the gospel. Paul even references this idea and talks about it. Now, going back to this question, why is this relevant? Why is this relevant to us? Most of us aren't full-time laborers in gospel ministry. But the truth is, we do all need to provide and collectively provide for those who are proclaiming the message. And I want to use this as just an opportunity to say, personally say thank you to our church that Rox and I feel very provided for. I feel like our church has been incredibly generous with us. And we are able to not worry about our expenses because you guys care so well for us. I also think of our missionaries who live uh, abroad. And I wonder, how much more can we give to them? How well can we provide 
for those who are going out and proclaiming the message? How much more can we as a church give so that we can hire more full-time workers for the gospel, have more flexibility and freedom in what we do with the message of the kingdom? God doesn't need our money. But one of the things that he has ordained and the things that he has ordered is for the people of God to be supplying the messengers. That's what God has said. So this passage is inviting us to collectively trust God as we give away our resources to those who are proclaiming. And it's an invitation to those who are proclaiming, like myself, like our missionaries, like all of those, to rely on the Lord through all of you. But ultimately, I do think this passage serves as a warning to people like me who are in full-time ministry. It's a warning that we must be cautious to not seek wealth and riches. It bothers me when we see wealthy pastors. It bothers me a great deal. I think there is tremendous danger in that. There is a temptation among pastors to climb that church ladder, get to the next biggest church that can give a bigger paycheck, give you more glory and honor in those things. Well, I think the faithful thing is to say, God, how can I serve you right here? And if God sends you somewhere, fine. Big churches need pastors too. But man, a lot of pastors start chasing something that God warns us about. Are we willing to just say, Lord, I trust that you're going to provide and you've put me right where you want me. So church, watch out for people who are seeking to get rich through preaching Christ. Watch out for them. As Jesus' people proclaim, they must rely on provision from their hearers. So let's move on to an expectation, what, what we can expect as we go. People will demonstrate their response to Jesus through their response to his messengers. People will demonstrate their response to Jesus through their response to his messengers. Again, this is not an earth-shattering concept, but it's something we need to hear. Because we are often tempted to think that people's response to us is about us when it's really about Jesus. And God promises us those who are going to respond to Christ are going to respond well to his messengers. So going back to verses 11 through 15, kind of these, this, end, uh, th- this last thought encompasses these last couple of sentences. And Jesus gives these instructions of, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. We'll get to verse 15 in a second. But Jesus gives these basic instructions saying, go into a village and see who's going to receive your message. Find out who's worthy. If they receive your message... Let your peace be on it. Basically, you know, stay there, continue proclaiming, rely on their provision. And Jesus basically says, hey, there's two groups. You got the worthy people and the unworthy people. And it's very clear who's who. They're either going to receive the message of the kingdom or they're going to not receive it. They're going to reject it. And if the, you find the unworthy people, Your responsibility is, according to Jesus, in this passage to the disciples, he says, leave. Go to the next village. Keep proclaiming the message. Don't stay there. He says, shake off the dust from your feet. This is what you would do 
when you left a Gentile area. You'd shake the dust off your feet. You would change your clothes. Why? Because you want nothing to do with those people. It was a cultural norm that they had. So when Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet, he's saying, these lost sheep of the house of Israel, they don't know me. They're relying on their ethnic identity, and it's not going to get them anywhere. They need to respond to me. Being born into a specific biological family will not save you. Being born into a specific church will not save you. The only thing that can bring you into the kingdom of heaven is responding to the king. Responding rightly to the king. And in verse 15, we get this sober reality. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. When you see Sodom and Gomorrah popping up in the scriptures, it's not a good thing. They are the number one example of wickedness and evil in the Old Testament. Whenever you want to have an example of somebody wicked, you'd be like, oh yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Even in Judges, at the end of Judges, we get this horrendous tale of something that's going on in Israel, and the, the way that the narrative is written is written almost identical to what happens in the narrative of, in Genesis, of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can't go into the tale now, but basically the author of Judges is basically saying Israel was so bad in the time of Judges, they were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is like the no-no. And Jesus is saying here, if they don't receive my message, if they don't respond rightly to me, they will face eternal destruction and damnation. They will be eternally separated from the king, from God himself. This is an audacious claim by Jesus. I mean, if any of us went out and been like, if you don't respond rightly to me, you're going to hell. And I don't mean like to my message, but to me. If you don't recognize me as Mark Johnson, you know, pastor of Christ Community Church, you know, yada, yada, yada. You would look at that and be like, well, this guy's full of it. What an arrogant jerk. But this is the message that Jesus is sending his disciples out with, that he is that promised king. And he gives this stern warning that if they don't receive it, disaster will strike. They're not rejecting the disciples they're rejecting Jesus, the King. There may be some of you in this room who have yet to respond to this King. And this passage asks you, how are you going to respond to this King? Have you been apathetic to Jesus? Have you looked at Him and said, eh, you know, someday I'll get serious? Or, uh, I don't know, or absolutely not. Wherever you are on that spectrum, this passage pleads with you to respond to Jesus. We deserve to die because of our sin. But Jesus, in His love for us, died for us, paid the price for us, and offers that gift to us if we are willing to just believe. To trust, really, trust is probably the best word, to trust that his death was enough and to trust in his sacrifice and instead of what I can do. He invites us 
to respond. Just as the people of Jesus' day heard the message of God's restorative rule and reign when these disciples came into their villages, just like that, us today have an opportunity to respond. Will we respond? Here's a beautiful truth, church, for all of us, whether you are a Christian or not, that Jesus was willing to experience our rejection on our behalf. We don't have a king who's giving a message of saying, respond to me, that wasn't willing to be rejected himself. He was rejected for us, by us. And so he died for us on our behalf. What beautiful truth. That is the king that we serve. It's a king that brings rejoicing to our heart. So I want to talk a little bit about just what to do with some of this. This idea that people will demonstrate their response to Jesus through their response to his messengers. What do I do with that? You know, it's like, okay, that's a, that's a thought, but what do I do when I walk out those doors? Well, one, I think like a scouting report, I need to have my heart ready to expect rejection. I shouldn't be surprised. Because often rejection or the fear of it is really what kind of keeps us from opening our mouths and speaking. But if I expect rejection, and I understand that that rejection is not rejection of me, but it's rejection of the message of Jesus and Jesus, it's a rejection of Jesus himself, then that frees me to just be the messenger. And yes, sometimes they shoot the messenger, but that's okay, because the message ain't about us. It's not about me. Football running back, when he gets the ball, expects to get hit. You know, nobody plays running back if they think, you know, uh, getting hit ain't that great. Because you got the ball. The other team also, you know, when when a running back does get hit and goes down, he doesn't get up mad at the other team for tackling him. He understands they're on the other team. Just as us, when we go out and we're proclaiming, we should expect to get hit. We should understand that they aren't tackling us because They hate us necessarily, although they may hate us, but it's because we're on the other team. We're on the other team. So expect rejection. Expect rejection. That's one thing we need to do, kind of having a mindset that's in that vein. But secondly, we need to keep going. Be ready to proclaim to the next person. Don't get bogged down in, this didn't work out. Be ready to keep going. A few months ago, or whenever Brett Risley came, I think it was a month and a half ago at this point, uh, during our little discipleship conference, he shared an illustration. It was so great, I want to share it with you. But, you know, he was kind of talking about how to respond to people. And he used the image of a traffic light. You have red, green, and yellow. Red and green is kind of obvious. Some people, they're just hostile to you. They don't want anything to do with the good news of the kingdom. And he said, "Just, just say, okay. You dust off your feet, you go to the next person. Green, obviously, like, hey, they're interested. I keep going. They're a worthy person that I share Christ with. Then there's the yellow where somebody's kind of like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. I think in this context, it'd be somebody that's obviously worthy, somebody who's willing to keep talking even if they're cautious. But he basically said, if there's somebody in your life that isn't like absolutely no, don't talk to me about that, then just proceed with caution, just like a yellow light. Just keep going. Keep trying those door handles. You can also imagine people's lives as being a bunch of kind of uh, doors. And you just kind of try one door at a time, just see if it's locked. If it's open, you go through it and you proclaim the gospel. If it's locked, you go down, try a few other doors. 
Maybe some other time, you get another chance, you can come by and try again. But for the most part, you just keep trying doors. See what's unlocked. So church, today, we need to proclaim. That's just clear. We have a message. It's not just living a good life, but we have a message to proclaim. The message of Jesus. Secondly, we need to rely. Rely on the body to support us. I'm not just talking about me, but really all of us, we support one another. And we need to be people who are supporting. And then we need to expect rejection. Expect rejection. But here's also a little truth. We should also expect some people to respond well. It's not all doom and gloom. As we proclaim, people are going to respond to the kingdom and fall in love with Jesus. And what a blessing that is to be the one who proclaims the message of the kingdom and to see that person go from following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, to instead being transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. What a privilege. What a privilege that is as we proclaim Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. We thank you for Jesus proclaiming that message to the disciples. And we thank you that the disciples proclaimed it and that others proclaimed it all the way down to us. Lord, may we be a proclaiming church, not out of duty or of anger or of superiority, but out of a heart of compassion. May we remember that this is good news and that you are a good king and that we once were lost sheep who had gone astray, but you in your mercy, in your tenderness, rescued us. Lord, help us to be people who rescue others. Help us to be clear and bold with the gospel, with that good news. And may we invite people into your restored rule and reign. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.